Welcome to our Sunday gatherings where our communities come together to worship Jesus, pray to Jesus, to remember Jesus, and to learn more about Jesus and how he wants to accomplish his will through our lives in the world as we look through the scriptures together. And if you would, I want to invite you to open up to what we call the book of Mark. Open up to the book of Mark, uh, or sometimes called the gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 14 today as we continue our study of the events that followed what we call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the eventual crucifixion and death on the cross. Now, as you turn there, if today's your first time with us, or maybe it's your first time in a while, we've been looking at how this specific period of Jesus' life, uh, really it's the week leading up to Jesus' death, uh, his brutal torture and his killing for really admitting that he was the Son of God and the promised Messiah, If for some reason you're wondering why it's important to study this period of Jesus' life um, and why maybe it's important to step back and understand how much of the gospel uh, writers looked at this uh, part of Jesus' life, I think here are just some some numbers for you. If if you're a numbers person, I'm I'm obviously a numbers person. I'm, um, you know, the old joke. I'm Asian, so we like numbers. Uh, But here's some numbers for you, just in case you're wondering. Um, There are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. 89 chapters in the four Gospels. Four chapters chronicle about the one year leading up to Jesus' birth. 55 chapters chronicle Jesus' three-year ministry leading up to the week of crucifixion, often referred to as the Passion of Jesus. 30 chapters chronicle the passion of Jesus. And so, if you do the math, which is really exciting for me, for obvious reasons, but if if you don't like to do it, I'll do it for you. If you do the math on the number of chapters dedicated to the number of weeks of Jesus' life, it means this, plus or uh, minus some numbers for errors on my calculation. But that means that the the writers of the gospel dedicated 0.8 chapters per week for the birth of Jesus, which, by the way, we have a whole holiday season dedicated to this portion of Jesus' life, 0.37 chapters per week for Jesus' public ministry, and then there are 30 chapters that are dedicated just for the week of the passion of Jesus. This means that the gospel writers devoted 80 times as much of their writings to the week of the passion as they do to Jesus' public ministry overall. I think sometimes that's it's easy for us to miss as we look at the, the scriptures, but this week of the Passion of Jesus Christ is actually a really big deal. And listen, why is that important to understand? Because while Jesus' birth is significant for us to understand uh, today, because really it represents so much of what culture dedicates to remembering that, and while Jesus' teachings are definitely something that all of us could spend the rest of our lives learning to understand and live out, the early followers of Jesus understood that central to understanding the gospel was understanding how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, about how God would fulfill his promise to make it possible for all people to be reconciled into a right relationship with him and in turn with others. And so we've dedicated the weeks leading up to Easter to, you know, reacclimate our hearts to the complete picture of what is the good news of Jesus. And, and, and that obviously begs the question, well, what was that picture? Well, the picture is this, that Jesus is our king. Right? This is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. That Jesus is our king. And then last week we learned this, this idea, we talked about this idea, that Jesus is not only our king, but he's also our high priest. And so Jesus, our king, has the right to rule and reign over our lives, and he is worthy of our worship 
and our dedication. And Jesus is also our high priest, which means that he's the only person, the only person with the power to reconcile us to God. And in doing so, here's the cool thing. Jesus empowers those who have become followers of God to live their lives out as priests of God through their words and through their actions, leading everyone within their spheres of influence towards a reconciled life with God. And as Jesus helped us do with others to live reconciled life with God and with others. So this is this idea of Jesus Christ as king, Jesus Christ as high priest. Today, we get to see a side of Jesus that I don't, and and again, this is going to sound really presumptuous, like, oh, I'm going to give you something that you don't really hear all the time. But I mean, honestly, I don't know if I've heard a lot of sermons talk about a study on what we're really talking about, because I think it's just so assumed. It's It's a doctrine about Jesus that, I think most people understand to be true, but if there's anything I've learned even in these past 20 years of, of ministry, there's, there's some things that we believe as a church that are, we, like, these are doctrines of the church and everybody believes these. And um, I think we're living in a day and age where like everything is being questioned. And I think sometimes it's really good to be reminded of some of these essential doctrines that we all um, have, have believed as, as believers of Christ throughout, throughout generations. And, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, but first... Before we dive into Mark chapter 14, we'll be at verse 32. Would you pray with me as we look into the scriptures and as we follow Jesus along this road to Easter and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So would you join me as I pray? Father in heaven, I do ask that as we step into your word in these next few moments, that by your Holy Spirit, which is alive and well within all of us who have chosen to follow you, who have May the commitment to increasingly learn what it means to submit all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts. That your word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, would pierce our hearts in such a way that we go from here not just understanding more about who you are through the person of Jesus, but that we are challenged in our faith to repurpose our rhythms so that we fall more in line with your will and your way. And God, as we walk in obedience towards you, I pray that you would give us the kind of humility displayed through Jesus Christ, even in these moments as we read today that keeps our perspective right on who is the one not only that deserves praise and honor and glory, but is the one to who we look for in our time of help, in our time of need. And when you accomplish great things through our lives, which I know you will, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and glory for what you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you found Mark? Chapter 14. We'll be at verse 32. We're going to be reading what is typically known as the prayer in the garden. And so it says this in verse 32. Then they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, 
I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. Then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The time has come. See, a son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. You know, you don't have to be someone who has placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You don't even have to be someone who believes everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible to recognize that this person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, has made an impact in our world. And even though it's been about 2,000 years since Jesus was recorded as a real human being that lived on the earth, not only by scripture, but by writings of early historians like Josephus and Tacitus. Many things that Jesus taught and said are things that are still taught and said by people from all walks of life and all faith backgrounds. For example, uh, see if you can, uh, you can finish these phrases. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, this one's an easy one. It says this, love your neighbor as, what is it? Yourself, right? Good. Mark 12, 31. You guys got that. Here's another one. Do unto others, do to others what? As you would have them do to you. Luke 6, 31, right? So these are the, we know these phrases. This is, these are things that we see in, in our culture all the time. Here's another one. Uh, this one's usually said in like a joke. Uh, but here's, get, get behind me what? Satan, get behind me. Some of you are like, man, I've heard that phrase way too often. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. Matthew 16, 23. And here's another one. Those who live by the sword, what? Die by the sword. Wow, see? We all know these phrases. A lot of people know these phrases. And here in our passage today, we actually have another saying that, uh, another saying of Jesus that many people are familiar with. In fact, this phrase has its own definition in uh, Webster's Dictionary. I don't even know if people even have, I, I know back in the day, having the paper Webster Dictionary was a thing, but I went to WebsterDictionary.com and I found this. And, and it says this, uh, here's, here's the phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? You hear that even in pop culture. And, and this is what it says. It's, it's an idiom used to say that a person wants to do something, but cannot from a lack of strength or energy. And then it has a side note. Often it's used humorously, like, oh, the spirit is willing. Like, like oh, I got to get up and work out tomorrow. But, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Just this last week, I actually ran into, uh, I ran into Sue at the gym and uh, she asked me how I was doing. And I was literally tempted, because I was working on the message, to be like, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, but I thought that would be really, I don't know, obvious 
for a pastor guy to say that. So I just said, I really don't want to be here. <laughs> that's, that's what I said. I was like, I hate this. I hate working out. It's been a year since I had my open heart surgery. And I go, I'm still waiting for the day because I follow all these dumb people. Well, I don't follow them. I just see them. They pop up. And I think it's because they're listening. I see them on social media. They're like, you know, the, the music, dun, dun, my special place. And they're like, you know, like this, this is where, this is where I, this is where I, I'm like, uh-uh. That is not my special place. And I'm like waiting for that day. Like, like I'm looking forward to it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And it's still, my flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and, and listen, while I, I may have wanted to be funny about my utter disdain for getting up early to work out, despite knowing that it's good for me, uh, Jesus, when he said this, was not trying to be funny to his disciples. For just a second, let's just pause and consider what this moment was like for Jesus. Like, Jesus had gone from being celebrated and worshipped as the promised king and Messiah. He had rode into Jerusalem with people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest. Being lauded as king of the Jews. And then he was found just like a servant. With a towel around his waist, washing his disciples' feet. And now he's sitting in the garden waiting the beginning of his eventual torture and murder as it approaches. And this, of course, makes sense of why Jesus invited the three of his disciples as, as often referred to as his inner circle. And he became super transparent with them, right? Didn't he? He said this. Said, Mark records this. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I am grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Now, I don't know what you see when you read this English translation of the passage of Scripture, but every Bible scholar I've read who has commented on the words Jesus used to describe how Jesus felt at this moment had something similar to say with what uh, one scholar says. And I, I have this here. You, just say, you can read it. It says, Mark's description of Jesus is actually shocking. I know we don't get that from our English translation. But when you read it in the Greek, it's actually a very shocking way it's made. Mark employed words that express the strongest possible anguish. In fact, there's other translations of the Bible, some older ones like the NEV that says, he was horrified. Jesus was horrified, which I think is probably a better rendition if we were to put it in today's terms. Now, I, I never try to assume where each one of you may be at this moment in your current season of life. But I have been living long enough to know that at any given moment, any one of us can find ourselves living in a reality that feels like we're going through the strongest possible anguish at any moment. And if that's you today, I want to tell you that Scripture has good news for you today. That Jesus understands your pain because Jesus lived your pain. The writer of Hebrews tells us this is a benefit of Jesus being our high priest. In Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we do not have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 
So in Jesus' moment of need, he has, he has three friends with him. Peter, James, and John. And, and how did it go for him? How did it go? They let him down, didn't they? They let him down. Now some, of the, some people would point to illustrations like this and say, See? See? Who needs people? Phil, I know you're always saying, like, we need people in our lives. But look, Jesus thought he needed people. And they let him down. That's what people do, Phil. People let you down. And listen, if this were the case, if this was a, an argument that I would allow you to get away with, then Jesus would have never built these kinds of friendships and invited Peter, James, and John into a part of his life that was transparent and vulnerable. Just because Peter, James, and John did not meet up to the expectations that we have in this current narrative doesn't mean we can't ignore the fact that Jesus did choose to have people in his life that he was both transparent and vulnerable with. And I think it's not a main part of this passage, but I think it just goes to say, like, who do you have in your life that you can be transparent, that you can be vulnerable with in your time of need? On a deeper level, this picture of Jesus in the garden actually helps us understand uh, something that we, t- we talk about here a lot when it comes to understanding the Old Testament, how Jesus is greater. Jesus, you know, the Old Testament is not a picture of who we are to be. David isn't there so that we can be the kind of giant slayers on our own, on our own life, right? You know, we're, we're not the type of, you know, we're not Abrahams or we are willing to sacrifice our own sons for Jesus. But in fact, Jesus is the better David who was not only a man after God's own heart and his own right and was the king of kings, but he never sinned. He never let us down. God, uh, Jesus was, was not only just, just the, he, he's not just an Abraham, he's better than Abraham. Even though Abraham gave his only son, Jesus would give his own life and he himself would become the lamb. And so here we have a picture. This is really interesting. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you are Bible nerds like me. Who else had three friends that let him down. Does anybody know in the scripture? Job, right? Job had three friends that let him down. Job suffered at the hands of the devil, right? At the permission of God because he was relatively righteous. Like he was relatively righteous because remember, if you remember the story, he wasn't absolutely righteous because Job would admit later that I had some sins in my youth and he he talked about how he felt guilty about that. And then he even said, you know, and when he was praying out to God, he goes like, Lord, there's, there's probably some sins I'm not even aware of that I've, I've done. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and admit it. I know that. And so Job suffered at the hands of the devil. And he, because he was relatively righteous, but Jesus was perfectly righteous, wasn't he? He never sinned. And while God spared Job's life and did not allow Satan to kill him, God did not spare Jesus' life, but instead allowed him to die so that it could be made possible for us to be reconciled to God. And so the story is not just about how the disciples let him down, but this is the story about how both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the writers of the Gospels who, who write about this, this is them showing again that Jesus is the true and better. He's the fulfillment of everything that we've been waiting for in the Old Testament. But if you know the story of Job well, you also remember that Job, right, he's, his three friends, they were there for him, but they eventually failed to be his comforters. Like, they started out pretty good. They were like, oh, we're here for you, we're here for you. But then, remember the story? They ended up being like, 
maybe Job, there, Job, there is some, Job, Job, not Job, 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 maybe Job, there is some, I did it again, I said to call him Job, why did I call him Job? Job, there is some sin in your life, and they're like, and he's like, no, I didn't, like, oh, there probably is, and so they kind of let him down, didn't they? And so in turn, what happens? Job gets really upset, and he turns to God, and then he begins doing what to God? He begins questioning God, like, why? Why would you do this to me? And then I love what God says to Job. And I hope God never says this to me. And he says, brace yourself like a man. <laughs> and then he goes on this, 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 uh, this soliloquy, so to say, about how, were you there? When were you there? And, and so Job begins to question God's will. But here we see Jesus. His three friends have let him down. But instead of asking God why, he was suffering. God, why did you give me these guys? Peter, especially Peter. I mean, come on. I even told him to get behind me, Satan, once, okay? Like, why? Gee, God, why are you doing this? But instead of asking God why, he admitted trust in God while simultaneously expressing the reality of the burden it was to face the cross. And it was in this moment we see a very clear picture of this essential doctrine of Jesus that we don't see anywhere else really as clear in the scripture. And what is this doctrine that I've teed us up in the beginning of the message and now I'm finally getting on to? What's this idea of that Jesus is the son of God? That Jesus is the son of God. Mark chapter 14 verse 36 says this, catches Jesus saying, Abba, Father. And in the Greek there, really, Father there is us in English. It was really just Abba, because Father is the translation of Abba. In fact, one Bible scholar says this, the word Abba is the Aramaic intimate form for Father, what we would say Daddy, or some of you Papa. A word the Jews did not use to address God because they thought it disrespectful. Like it would be disrespectful to think of God in these terms. You know, one of the popular things that you'll hear in, in modern day culture is um, this, this phrase, and nod your head if you've ever heard of it. You know, we are all God's children. Have you ever heard that phrase? Like people are like, hey, you know what? We're all God's children, right? We're all God's children. And for the most part, I, I understand what people are trying to say. Like I, I get the sentiment of that. Like I'm not trying to be too hard on that phrase, because, you know, words are, words are just words sometimes. But, unfortunately, there is a huge difference between understanding that uh, all people are God's creation versus understanding that all people are God's children. Like, there's a difference between saying all people are God's creation and all people are God's Children. And the thing we have to understand is that only those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus are God's children. First John 3, 1 says this, See what great love the Father has given us so that we can be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So, okay, so where am I getting back? Getting to. I'll wrap this all together. So the doctrine of Jesus as Son of God is essential because if Jesus is not the Son of God, 
He cannot be the Messiah King in the Old Testament. And he cannot be an accurate picture for us to understand our relationship with God the Father. But just as important as that is, this picture of Jesus praying to God the Father in his time of great distress teaches us two things that I want to draw our attention to. And it's really this. The first thing is that we need to be people who are committed to prayer. In light of what we see Jesus demonstrating in this passage, I think one of the most damaging lies that any person can tell themselves or even hear from others is that we should not come to God with the same prayer over and over again. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say something like that, like, oh, why do you keep praying about that thing? You know, God heard you the first time. You don't need to be praying about it. You probably shouldn't be praying about that. In verse 39, Mark tells us that after finding the disciples asleep the first time, it says in verse 39, once again, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same thing. I guess just Jesus didn't know that you're not supposed to pray the same prayer over and over again. And so in this moment, we see Jesus demonstrating what he taught his disciples in Matthew 17 and Luke 18, when he talk about the importance of persistence in prayer. It was probably why Paul gave the command in his closing statements to the churches in and around a, a city called Thessalonica. And he said this, pray without what? Some of you know, ceasing, right? Pray without ceasing. You know, if you're a follower of Christ, I think you would generally agree with and maybe admit to doing this, praying without ceasing. And it looks like this, you know, you pray before your road trips, you pray before your food, you're right. What else? What are some things that we pray before? Like, you know, we pray before our tasks, we pray, right? We, we always pray, like we get this. But how many of us, how many of us find ourselves going to the Lord in prayer when, when there are moments in our lives when God has asked us to embrace hard things, like hard things? In our current culture, a growing philosophy goes like this. If you find yourself in a difficult situation, all you need to do to figure out where you need to go is what? You need to follow your, right? Oh, you watch the same Disney movies, right? You need to follow your what? Heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. And if you do it, it will always lead you in the right direction. That's kind of the narrative, right? But Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus demonstrated that we all have experienced, he demonstrated really something that all of us have experienced at one time and another, that there are moments in our lives that we do not want. Like there's a, there's a desire in us to not enter into what God has planned for us. Like if you don't see that that's what's happening here, Jesus is going, God, if, if possible, take this cup from me. Like, if you don't understand that Jesus is, is showing us right now that even the Son of God can struggle to embrace God's will. Like, like internally. Like, never did he waver. I will make that clear. He did not waver. He never hesitated. But there was that internal struggle. And he alluded to it as he talked to his disciples. I think he was being even a little bit transparent about his own life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
So there's that struggle. And, and I think some, some of us, like we live our Christian life and maybe we see people that we admire who are really doing it and they're killing it like with Jesus. And, and you're like, well, they never struggle. I feel like I'm struggling all the time. And well, maybe I should just give this all up. You need to know that Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The struggle is part of our lives. I struggled. You will struggle. And as Jesus taught, but take hope. Why? I have overcome the world. Jesus gives us a model to not only trust in him, but we also, we also need to go to God in prayer. Jesus teaches us that prayer is vital in helping reorient our hearts from what tempts us and towards what ultimately leads us into all truth. So not only does this passage of scripture teach us that we need to be people of prayer, but this is really the, I think the opus of it all is that God's will is a choice we must walk in despite where the inclination of our hearts lead us. God's will is a choice. It's a choice. Like it's a choice we must walk in despite where the inclination of our hearts lead us. You know, there are people who would say following your heart is the noblest way of navigating through life. And that sounds good until you realize that when you followed your own heart, it has equally led you to do and say things that you dare not repeat and that you dare not say. And when you think about all the times in your life where you, I was just going with my heart. I was just following my heart. There were times in your life where you're like, oh, heart, you really let me down. And when you realize that, you quickly understand why it's an unwise choice to ask, hey, what does my heart tell me to do? Like, I mean, that's, that's kind of like advice that we hear, like, oh, I don't know, what should I do? And like, well, what does your heart tell you to do, honey? That's a terrible advice. Like, don't ask me what my heart tells me to do. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 tells us that the goal of the follower of Jesus' lives isn't to follow our hearts, but it's actually to get new ones. <laughs> and why do we need a new heart? Because here's what the Lord has to say through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. Well, not my heart. No, no, your heart. And it's desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Like, oh, that was Old Testament, Phil. You're being kind of harsh. Well, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 19. He told us that it was out of our hearts, right? Flow the issues of life and our sin, Proverbs 4.23 tells us that our heart needs to be guarded, not for what can happen to us. I know uh, growing up in, in youth group, and especially during the whole Joshua Harris movement, kiss dating goodbye fiasco, you know, we always say, guard your heart, guard your heart. Hey, you know, sorry, 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 Sarah. I can't hang out with you today. I need to guard my heart. Like, like I know I like you, but you know, I'm just guarding my heart. I'm dating Jesus right now, right? Like, we, we, we talk about this phrase, guarding our heart. And, and it's often terms in, 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 
it refers to the idea of like, something's going to happen to us, and so we need to guard it. But do you know that actually, many times where the scripture talks about guarding your heart, it's actually not about guarding your heart for what's going to happen to it. Guarding your heart actually has more to do with guarding others from what your heart can do to others. And if Proverbs 4.23 is a great example of it, we are not guarding it for what can happen to it because of what can come out of it. So, what Jesus demonstrates for us in the garden is something that only requires a few words to say, but takes a lifetime to learn. Not your will, but my will be done. It, it just takes a few seconds to say it, but, but like uttering those words and meaning it and understanding it and letting the issues of our life and the realities of our lives fall into flow with that prayer. It takes a lifetime, doesn't it? But it's the way. Or as the Mandalorian would say, this is the way. <laughs> Sorry. I've been watching too much of that. And, and, and this is really the, the point. The point is that our hearts were not designed to be followed. They were designed to be led by God. So God's will is a choice that we must walk in despite where the inclination of our hearts lead us. Now, there's a lot of different things you can get out of this passage today. And the reason why I concentrated on this idea of prayer and not following a heart is just I don't know, I, I weep over our current culture where we celebrate kind of this lack, and it makes sense. I had, you know, I had a professor in, in college that said, he said, students, is, is this big guy, he, was, he had actually, it was funny, his name was Dr. Anderson, he had narcolepsy, so he would teach his class, he put hit his big belly, put his hands like this, and he would teach and he would fall asleep while he's teaching. And he would go, hallelujah. <laughs> it, was, it was the best thing. But, he, but anyways, uh, but he, he said this one thing that was absolutely, uh, it sticks with me forever. And, and, and I've since known that it's not like something only he has said. It's actually something pretty popular. But it was the first time I'd ever heard this. And it just blew my mind. He goes, you know, students, you know, be to it an everlasting error for us to expect those who are not followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus. Um, why do I say that? It's not a surprise when I look at the world around us that they embrace a life that is not ordered by God's word. So I'm, I'm not saying this in, 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 in a real condemning way to them, but it just needs to be said that when you follow your heart, when you follow the natural inclinations of your own heart, it will lead you to ruin. It's just not wise. It's just not wise. Like, what feels good? What feels natural? And if you want to be someone who is increasingly growing in your submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, at some point in our lives, we have to realize that when Jesus said we have to take up our cross 
die to ourselves and follow him. And he really meant that. And it's a long, hard journey. And it's a journey where you can tell God, I don't like this. I don't like this. That sin that everyone else actually doesn't think is sin. God, can't you just turn a blind eye? Can't I just live this way and then, no, no, God's calling us to it. And we need to say, but nevertheless, Lord, let your will be done. And so I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know. I just felt like God was saying, this is something that we need to wrestle with. And here's what I hope you would do. I hope you don't listen to this message and go like, I know this person that really needs to hear this. Like, I have this friend. I have this sister. I have this brother. I have this wife. I have this husband that should really, like, figure this out. Here's, because you'd be missing the point. The question that you need to ask yourself is, where am I struggling? Where am I struggling to cry out to Abba, Father, not my will, but your will be done? As we head towards celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, I think it's so important for us to understand what it was that Jesus died for. But it's also important to understand how Jesus took that journey to the cross. It was a hard one for us. But it was not one that was not relieved without the power of prayer and trusting in God. What is it that you're going through that feels like deep anguish? Have you spoken to God recently? And have you submitted your will to him?